Hello and welcome to episode 52 of The Witcher chapter by chapter book review where I'll go through a summary of the latest chapter and give my detailed thoughts on it. Today I'm discussing chapter 6 from The Lady of the Lake. Halfway through with this chapter, 12 chapters in The Lady of the Lake book. So with the end of this episode, we're halfway through covering this book and then pretty much done the series, which is so sad. But... It is what it is. It's gonna happen. So <laughs> sometimes I feel like delaying it, but I'm not gonna do that. And with the staying in the theme of not delaying things, let's get into the recap of where we left off with the character that we follow in this chapter. And this is an interesting one because we have never followed this character this closely before. He is very minor. But it's it's a good chapter nonetheless. It's it's interesting. I do like it, but we don't follow our main characters. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But for the recap, we left off with Yara in the Melitolae Temple where he was upset with Nenica for allowing novices to travel to war as medics, but not allowing him to join the army as a soldier. He really wanted to do his patriotic duty and he also seemed to be driven by the need to do something that might help Siri. Okay, for the summary of today's chapter, chapter six. Yara is traveling to the Temerian capital of Vizima to sign up for the war after sneaking off without Nenica's permission. While on the road, he runs into a group of young men who are about to rob him until one of them, a boy named Melfi, recognizes Yara. Melfi and Yara were in the temple school together until Melfi's performance was bad and he returned home to work with his father. The boys are all heading to the same place to join the army, so Yara attends their group. On the way, they see traveling armies and traveling merchants. The group's leader, Pike, is about to rob an old merchant when two older seasoned soldiers approach and stop them. The group and the older soldiers continue to Vizima together, but Yara gets separated from the group of boys and the older men go off on their own. Right after they leave, Dennis Cranmer, a dwarf from Alander, spots Yara and brings him to a spot where he can get some food. They're joined by Zoltan, Yarpen Zegren, and Sheldon Skaggs, and they all discuss the war as well as Siri. Later, Dennis praises Yara for not mentioning Ciri when she was brought up by the other dwarves and warns him that in the army, he better continue to keep quiet because, as is demonstrated by the numerous hanged bodies, simply expressing the slightest utterance of defeatism will get you executed. It's tough there. Dennis takes Yara to the conscription tent and says goodbye. Yara is assigned to a unit called the PFI. He heads in the direction where the unit is stationed and meets back up with Melfi, who abandoned the rest of the boys because he finally picked up on their criminal intentions. They travel to their assignments together until they arrive where they were directed, which happens to be the same place. This confuses Yara, who believed as a scholar he'd be assigned to a more prestigious unit than Melfi, but turns out they were both assigned to the poor fucking infantry. Meanwhile, Pike and his group stole army equipment and returned to a halfling village they noticed on the road so that they could pose as officials and demand the halflings give them their money and food. The halfling family, however, was highly prepared to deal with robbers just like these guys and managed to kill Pike and the group before they could kill them. 
Well, this is kind of one of those chapters that it, it isn't super exciting because it doesn't follow any of our main characters. There's no Geralt, no Siri, no Yennefer. And uh, Yara, he's just been such a minor character until this point. So as we're nearing the end of the story, it can be a bit dissatisfying to spend a whole chapter with a character like this and also following a plot point that seems so far from the main story. I mean, there's relevance, of course, but it's not really... It doesn't seem as integral to like what's going on with Geralt and Ciri at the moment. But I will say a lot of the information we learn from this chapter may have relevance later. It may. Plus, um, something that I really liked is Yara's motivation. Uh, he keeps saying that he wants to do his patriotic duty, but his other motivation is coming from his feelings for Ciri, and that's it's pretty adorable. So I like that piece. Okay, so let's go through the chapter and dissect the crap out of it like we normally do. So starting from the beginning, Yara is traveling to Vizima to sign up as a volunteer in the war against Nilfgaard, and he has completely lost faith in the goodness of people. So when he originally set out, he believed that people were kind and caring, but after receiving no help from anyone that he asked for help, like um, like a room to stay in or even just a small piece of food. Um, no, Nobody wanted to help him and he let go of those beliefs. So he was incredibly disappointed because he had this myopic view of the world, which is normal for someone his age who hasn't been exposed to many people or many other regions. And he just had to learn the hard way. He had to learn through experience that uh, things aren't as nice as he always believed they were. People aren't as nice as he always believed they were. Well, he is um, sleeping outside because he doesn't have a place to stay. Nobody will help him. So on these nights, he keeps seeing this red and gold comet in the sky. And he doesn't know what this could be about, but he's aware that this comet has been mentioned in prophecies. So it might be important. It might not. But he continues on his journey and he's about to cross over this little bridge and the band of boys from the other side of the bridge threaten to harm him. And he warns them that he has a knife, but he's so scared, he's probably not even gonna pull out the knife if he had to, like if he really did need to defend himself in that moment, I don't think he would have been capable of pulling out that knife and using it. Uh, but it's okay because right before they're about to attack, Melfi from Elander recognizes him and then the assault is basically called off. So Yara joins their company, which isn't really a good situation because these are obviously not good people, although they keep trying to act like they were just pranking him. They definitely weren't. But he joins their company anyway and they camp together that night before setting off toward Vizima. And before they go to sleep, they talk for a little bit and they talk about how some of them, like Melfi, were conscripted into the army and then some of them, like Pike, which is basically their unofficial leader, is joining as a volunteer. So Yara explains to him that he's volunteering so that he can fulfill his patriotic duty and for personal reasons. And in that moment, Pike asks him what those personal reasons are, but Yara refuses to disclose that information. But we know, we know it's Siri. We know what's going on in his head. Well, during that part of the conversation about volunteering, Yara says something about them robbing innocent travelers. And to this, Melfi chimes in and says, oh, it was only a prank. 
It obviously wasn't. Melfi believes it was. But as far as the other boys are concerned, no, they were definitely going to rob him if um, Melfi didn't know Yara or if he if Yara was somebody else, a complete stranger. And Yara is not challenging them on that. He's not somebody that is equipped to fight. He has no experience in fighting anybody, so it would really just be better to, to just uh, pretend like he agrees with them. Well, then they go to sleep, and Yara dreams about Geralt dying in the snow, similarly to how Ciri saw him in the previous chapter in her dream. And then he also sees Ciri, just like how she was at the end of the last chapter, where she was riding really fast on Kelpie, and she was trying to dodge the elders that were reaching out to her. So it looks like even Yara has prophetic dreams. And I don't know if there's any meaning behind that. If, it, if there is, it has not been explained, but it's interesting nonetheless. So the next day, they're traveling to Vizima and they pass by a small halfling village. The boys talk about how the halflings here are wealthy and basically unaffected by the war. And Pike tells them to remember this village in case they pass it again. And this is kind of just an important detail for the event at the end of the chapter. Then later they're traveling near many others and they start plotting how they're going to rob an old merchant. And Yara, who's been bothered during the entire day, he was definitely bothered last night by their their crass humor, all the little plotting that they do. He, he steps in and he tries to stop them. Like I was just talking about how he has no fighting experience, so he's gonna just kind of go along with it. But he, he has had enough with these kids. He's been with them all day now and he doesn't wanna just roll over and let them do whatever they want when they're trying to do something horrible, like rob this poor old merchant who's minding his own business. Um, but naturally, they don't take kindly to him trying to stop them. And then Pike shows Yara a knife and he threatens him. But this threat is luckily interrupted by, they call them Landschnecks in the book, which is a word I was unfamiliar with until this chapter. I looked it up. Um, it's basically just like a seasoned soldier. So that's what I'll refer to them as because I, I don't know. Landschneck is just, I don't, I don't like, I don't know. <laughs> it just sounds like such a weird word. Like, I mean, I, I just don't want to use it. I'm just going to call them uh, soldiers. So these seasoned soldiers are, um, they step in and they're very, heavily weaponed up and pike and the rest of the group back off just among seeing these guys because they're that intimidating and then um yara and the merchant are basically like okay like we're good now and melfi steps in again to tell them that they're just doing pranks and the merchant even says that no harm was done and then the soldiers um, go on to invite them to join them on the way to Vizima. That's where they're going to, of course. And they figure if they all band together, it will be safer. So they continue on, but they're forced to take a break from their traveling when these very large groups of marching soldiers are using the roads. So Yara provides a little history lesson while they're waiting on the Temerian heraldry. And then they see the free company pass by. So the free company, basically, they just accept pay for fighting in a war. They are not obligated to fight for any country. So whoever's willing to pay them, and I guess pay them the most, is who they're going to fight for. And the free company consists of members 
that were mentioned back in the Tower of the Swallow. So it was the chapter where Dijkstra goes to uh, Kovir and meets King Astrad Tyson. So the names of the people that were mentioned back then, and they're brought up again in this chapter, it was Adam Adu Pangrat, Lorenzo Mola, Juan Gutierrez, and Julia Pretty Kitty Abba Marco. So in the Tower of the Swallow, in that chapter, King Esterad Tyson granted amnesty to prisoners. I don't know that it was every single prisoner, but to probably a lot of prisoners. And then he sent them, part of the amnesty was for him to be able to send them to fight with the Northerners against Nilfgaard. So in that chapter from the future, Esterad Tyson's grandson recalled his grandfather, King Esterad's decision to send the prisoners to fight in war. And he mentioned the, uh, the previously mentioned prisoners by name since they became famous heroes in the war. And that fame that they acquired from what we can tell in this chapter seemed to have been acquired very quickly because it wasn't really that long ago. This chapter takes place in March. It was around the beginning of winter. I don't remember the exact month or even if it was mentioned. I know it was around like beginning of winter time. So it didn't take long for them to uh, gain this fame. But yeah, they are already recognized by name in this chapter. Like they're pointed out. People have heard of them. People think that they're badass and they admire them. They look up to them. And part of why this has happened is because, or this might be the whole reason, but they were in this victorious battle, victorious on their their part against Nilfgaard that kind of probably just temporarily tipped the scales in the favors of the Northerners. Well, back to uh, Yara and the whole group on the road. The last of the military groups to pass are the dwarves from Mahakam who have won and lost battles against the Black Cloaks. It was made sure to point out that like, they do win, they do lose some. But once they're all passed, Yara and the rest of the group, they start heading toward Vizima again. And they're also with that merchant that they were about to rob. And he points out the comet that Yara noted at the beginning of the chapter. And he explains that red comets are apparently an omen of fevers, blood, and fire, and they must indicate dreadful defeats, pogroms, and massacres for the northern countries. But one of the soldiers, the older seasoned soldiers, uh, he steps in and he tells him that the comet, it could be seen from Nilfgaard. It's not just the northerners who are seeing it. So it could mean all of those bad signs, but for Nilfgaard. And I like his way of thinking. It's, I think it's beneficial to stay positive during times like these, especially considering what we learn pretty shortly after this moment. Well, they arrive in Vizima where it smells really, really bad from the military encampments that have been set up there for months. And then they see many murals painted on walls that are meant to encourage people to sign up for the army. After they moved through the area a little, Yara notices that the boys, like Pike and all of them, Pike Melfi, and the few others whose names I didn't bother to write down, um, he notices that they're no longer with them, and one of the soldiers points out that they scurried away at the first opportunity, and Yara should consider himself lucky that they did, and I agree. 
So they continue on a little bit and they see a man in a pillory being taunted and having things thrown at him from the surrounding crowd. And one of the onlookers tells them that this man has been put in this position because he was guilty of farming. <laughs> Basically what he heard was that the man sowed defeatism and he misinterpreted it. Um, probably just uneducated and doesn't have uh, that much of a vocabulary, like, like a typical peasant in this world. But I just thought it was funny that he thought that the man was guilty of farming. But it, it's important because it just goes to show that this defeatism alone is taken very seriously here. Like we get to see that that's a big deal almost immediately after they arrive in Vizima. Well, immediately following this, the soldiers and the merchant go off on their own. But before the merchant takes off, he offers Yara a heart-shaped medallion. And he says that it's magical and it will never allow the wearer or the wearer of it will not. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> if the wearer has it and he writes down the name of his love in this magic ink that the merchant has, then the name of the girl that he writes down will not forget him. So Yara accepts the gift and he has him write down the name Cirillo. <laughs> so cute. So after he takes the medallion, the dwarf, Dennis Krenmer appears and he approaches Yara and he recognizes him from Melander. That's where the Melitale temple is, um, just as a quick reminder. Another reminder. We met Dennis Cranmer a while back in Alander in the very last chapter of The Last Wish book. So the first book has been a while and he was just in that one little bit. So it could be easy to miss him as a repeat character. Um, I'm pretty sure the first time I read this series through, I did not realize that he was the same dwarf from that chapter. But he, in that... Um, chapter in the last wish he was a captain that attended um, as an official basically the duel between Tal talus talus i never knew how you said his name i think i used to pronounce it talus um so between that guy and Geralt, to um while well, Geralt was staying at the temple uh, melodily's temple with denica and Dennis was cool. Uh, when Geralt won that duel, the duel that seemed impossible to win because the rules were completely unfair, that other guy that was there, his name was Count Falwick, he tried to accuse Geralt of cheating, which he didn't. <laughs> the guy was just salty that Geralt actually won, even with those ridiculous rules. But Dennis stepped in and he backed up Geralt. He was on his side and told Count Falwick to piss off. Um, I mean, it is true that Dennis did originally go along with the BS from the start, but I think that was just because his job required him to obey, and he's one of those people that when he's told to do something, he's going to do it. Um, he's also a non-human, and the consequences of disobedience are probably pretty terrible for non-humans. I would imagine that they were way worse than they are for humans. So. Dennis gives Yara a hard time for running away from the temple without permission, but he kind of moves on from it pretty quickly and he takes him to get food. They go to an inn and that's where they're joined by Zoltan, Yarpen Zegrin, and Sheldon Skag. So we're familiar with Zoltan since we've spent a lot of time with him. It wasn't really even that long ago, so I'm not going to reintroduce him. 
We are pretty familiar with Yarpin, but it has been a while. So just to give you a reminder in case you forgot, he was on the dragon hunt that Geralt attended in the Bounds of Reason story from Sword of Destiny. And he was also present when Geralt, Ciri, and Triss joined his group while traveling from Kaer Morhen to the Temple School. So he was that guy. Sheldon Skaggs, though, he was only present once in the story. And that was following Dandelion's performance under Bleoberis, Bleoberis in chapter one of Blood of Elves. It's also been a long time. Um, there was this whole discussion following the performance between different groups of people, like the different races, um, all the like the humans were in their own group, the dwarves were in their own group, the elves were in their own group, and I think they were also kind of separated by like social status, economic status. But Sheldon Skaggs was there among the dwarves, and he was pretty engaged in that conversation where they were talking about Nilfgaard, the previous war with Nilfgaard, the first one. Um, and they were also kind of talking a little bit about how there could be a second Nilfgaardian war, which at the time we didn't know if that was going to be a thing or not. Obviously, we know that that is very much a thing. So when the dwarves, Sheldon, Yarpin, Zoltan, Dennis, uh, when they um, find out that Yara is joining the army as a volunteer, this discussion begins about volunteers in the army. So Zoltan points out that it isn't surprising that at the time there are volunteers because the volume of army volunteers rises after a victorious battle, which the North recently experienced due to the free company, like Pretty Kitty and Adam Pangrat and all them. But he thinks that after Menno Cohorn's army comes marching up the Inna, the rise in volunteers will come to a halt. And by the way, Menno Cohorn, as we've briefly met and heard of before, is a field marshal in the Nilfgaardian army. Just wanted to provide these reminders, because a lot of these characters that are brought up are very seldomly mentioned. Um, very seldomly. <laughs> they are seldomly mentioned. And um, yeah, they're just, you, you, you wouldn't really, it would be very easy to miss them. So I just want to make sure that I say who they are and what we do know about them. I mean, I might not give every little detail that we ever heard, but I'll just give you like the gist of it. But anyway, uh, Dennis agrees, and he, what is he agreeing to? I'm sorry. <laughs> I kind of get off the point. I get off track sometimes. Oh, he agrees that the rise in volunteers is going to drop um, once Menno Cohorn's army comes marching up the Inna. So he says that he doesn't trust volunteers because they're more likely to desert. He believes this based on a precedent set by Visigurds Sintrin Corps that fought against the Free Company in the Nilfgaardian Vanguard, which is really interesting considering how Visigurd was, he seemed, he seemed like such a Sintrin patriot and he really wanted to have Geralt and Dandelion executed and thought everybody was a Nilfgaardian spy. But to this, uh, Sheldon Skagg says that the um, Sintrin Corps was summoned by Empress Ciri. Yarpin tells him not to talk about things he doesn't understand because as someone who knows Siri, Yarpin does understand and therefore believes her marriage to Amir to be a hoax and that she has a different destiny. 
natural Zoltan agrees with the destiny part because we, as we know, he knows Geralt, he knows what Geralt's mission is. So they move on from the topic to talk about the upcoming battle against Cohorn Center Army Group and how it'll be a huge battle. This was another thing that had been talked about in previous chapters. Amir is launching an, ass an assault at an unprecedented scale against the North in the spring. So the center army group was an essential, very important component of the assault. And Amir was holding off on aggressions until spring. And because this chapter takes place in March and includes a note about it being exceptionally warm, you know, there's no snow right now, this attack should probably be happening very soon. I think we can anticipate in upcoming chapters to hear about that. Um, or like maybe, I don't know, within the next two chapters. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but I think there's a little bit of foreshadowing going on here. Well, after this, Dennis takes Yara to the conscription committee so he can get signed up. But before they make a stop at the square that contains many hanged bodies and the executed, as explained by Dennis, included people who just said the most harmless of things about the war and were accused of defeatism. Well, they said things and they did a couple of little things like the one example he used, which sounded extremely harsh. And I think he was guessing on this one, but there was a guy who brought his son to be um, conscripted into the war. And instead of cheering proudly for him, he cried and he was executed for that. So Tamaria has a very low tolerance for anyone who expresses pessimism toward their victory against Nilfgaard. And it's probably because they believe it to be hopeless since their army is way smaller than Nilfgaard's and they don't want anyone deserting. They don't want morale to drop. They don't want people being discouraged from volunteering. I guess people who are exempt from conscription. Well, the last thing that they discuss before they part is Yara. He's asking Dennis if he could join Dennis's unit. And Dennis denies him saying, basically it's just because there's only room for dwarves, which is kind of true. But Dennis thinks to himself about how he owes Nenica a debt and he doesn't want Yara getting killed. He would really like Yara to return to Nenica in one piece, which is not likely to happen if he joins Dennis is a unit because they send the dwarven units to do like the worst things in war. Like they're put in, in the worst positions in the battle. Basically they're sent to do the things that you don't come back from. And that's because they're thought of as an inferior race. And this is just another example of the racial discrimination in this world. It's really crappy. Well, Yara goes to sign up and the recruiter is asking him if he knows how to perform basically any type of combat. He even asks him if he knows how to cook. Yara answers no, but he tries to explain that he can read, write, speak the elder speech, write ancient runes, but the recruiter is not interested in that and he just sends him off to his assigned unit that's called the PFI. So Yara heads in the direction and then he runs into Melfi. Melfi says that he finally picked up on what kind of people the group of boys he was following were when he he picked he picked up on this when he learned that they were trying to steal army equipment so that they could pose as soldiers. Uh, he also says that he got signed up for the army too, and he's to report to a spot which is located near where Yara is supposed to go. So they head there together. 
But when they arrive, Yara thinks that he's in the wrong place because Melfi recognizes it as where he belongs. And Yara doesn't think that they would be placed, the two of them would be placed in the same unit. Also because the recruits seem very uneducated compared to Yara. He sees them training and they've got straw on one leg and hay attached to another leg and their instructor or leader is calling out straw and hay because they can't tell left from right. So he sees this, he sees that this is where Melfi's going. He's like, yeah, this is definitely incorrect. I gotta talk to somebody. I gotta figure out where I'm supposed to go. So he asks a man there who looks like he's in charge. She asks him where he needs to go for the PFI. And the guy just tells him, welcome home. Welcome to the poor fucking infantry. So Yara had this pretentious attitude thinking he'd be in this more prestigious unit than Melfi, but the recruiting officer turned out to not care at all about his education. I don't think he found it to be relevant. So it doesn't sound too good for Yara. He's got no fighting or combat experience and he's joining a unit with the word poor in it. Um, like poor, unfortunate is how I interpreted that. So it, it, I think that it got that name from being the least likely to survive. And the infantry is where a lot of heavy combat takes place. So, and then this is also a war that has not been going, it has not been going very well for the side that he has joined. I hope Yara makes it. I really do. But it's not looking good. Well, the chapter wraps up with Pike and his group visiting the halfling village. The owner of the home that they go to is a halfling called Rocco Hildebrandt, and he's pushing back on Pike and the group as they're demanding that Rocco hand over his money and their cows and I think other things. So since they're disguised as soldiers from the equipment that they stole, Rocco doesn't know that they're fake, but he's resisting anyway because he's already paid up on his taxes. Plus he's got family members that are already helping out in this war. One of his relatives that he mentions is a halfling called Milo Vanderbeck. And he mentions that he also goes by Rusty. And he says that he's a field surgeon. And this is another callback in this chapter. And we only heard of Milo Vanderbeck once, and that was when one of the novices from the Melitale Temple was about to leave to go to the war, and she told Nenica that she was assigned to work as a medic under Milo Vanderbeck. But speaking of Rocco's family, his wife's maiden name is Biebervelt which was the name of the halfling from Eternal Fire and Sword of Destiny. So they're most likely related. So the halfling was Dainty Bieberveld, and then he was uh, being impersonated by the Doppler Dudu, who by the end of the story was accepted as a member of the Bieberveld family. So Dudu and Dainty Bieberveld. So uh, Rocco's wife is probably related to them. And that's not all. <laughs> there was also somebody else. They, they were joined by a halfling called Sam Hoffmeyer, I think it's pronounced, uh, which is the same name as Bernie and Petunia. Bernie and Petunia Hoffmeyer, whose farm Geralt stayed on with Dandelion when Siri ran away from Yen and Gorsvelin to find him there in uh, Time of Contempt. So lots of callbacks in this chapter. Lots of very subtle callbacks. 
Well, Rocco finally gets Pike to, or he finally asks him why they should give them anything. And Pike answers with lots of extremely vulgar and bigoted words. And with that, Rocco tells him, no, we're not giving you anything. So Pike orders the group to kill Rocco and his family. But before they can do anything, Rocco and his family, they spring into action and they kill him first. They kill the whole group first. And they do it so fast. Well, once Pike and the rest of his group are all dead, Sam Hoffmeyer asks Rocco what they should do with the bodies. And Rocco tells him to place them in the birch cups with the rest. So this isn't the first and probably isn't even the second time that people have tried to rob them. More examples of what happens if you're a non-human in this world. Okay, closing thoughts. So many callbacks in this chapter, and I really love it. I love it when he does that, especially because when I read the books through the first time, I didn't pick up on so many, and I really love the subtlety. I think it's just way more exciting when you do notice it, um, especially when you're reading it through the second time, and then you're like, wait, I didn't even realize the first time that I read this through that this character was actually mentioned before. This character was included in the story at one very brief point, but they were in the story nonetheless. And I don't know, it's just, it's an exciting feeling. There's also a lot more demonstrations of hatred and discrimination against the non-humans, like I was just talking about. Um, the dwarves and the halflings in this chapter is what is really highlighted. And I thought that that was interesting because we usually hear more about the discrimination and the racism towards the elves. So this was a good reminder that it's not limited to just them. Although I think that the uh, racism towards the elves is probably escalated. I would say it's probably worse. And I'm thinking because of the Scoia'tael and how they were um, basically tricked by Nilfgaard to fight against the North to help out Nilfgaard. But the Scoia'tael was originally um, it did originally include dwarves. I don't know if it included halflings or gnomes. I can't remember, but it did include dwarves, but the uh, amount of dwarves went down a lot. And I'd be surprised. They haven't talked about that in a while, but I'd be surprised if there were any dwarves still. And it was always primarily elves. So I think that the racism against elves is way worse. But as you see in this chapter, like what with what Yarpin, I'm sorry, not Yarpin, Dennis thought about how they um, send the dwarves to war, how they put them in the positions that are the most dangerous, where they're most likely to get killed, and how people keep trying to attack these poor halflings who haven't done anything wrong. They're just minding their own business. Yeah, those are prime examples of how they uh, they're not liked because they're not humans, so. There you have it. Okay, looking ahead. Hopefully Yara doesn't die, but in the infantry, the PFI to be exact, in a war where the enemy has a much larger army than the one he's participating in, it's not looking so good. Even after this chapter, um, we really don't know him that much better, but he just seems like a really good person and a really nice person. And his crush on Siri is so cute. <laughs> I I uh, I would ship them, but I don't know. I think I'm just more concerned with 
Siri um, surviving. <laughs> like, I'm not thinking about any romance for her at all. I'm just more so thinking about her not getting killed by all the many people that want to kill her. But for Yara's sake, I don't know. I just, I don't want him to die. Nice kid. Also, hopefully the dwarves that we know, Yarpin, Dennis, Sheldon, Zoltan, hopefully they don't die in the war. Um, I don't know if every single one of them is going to fight in the war. I think it sounded like they were saying that they were. Dennis, for sure. Um, but yeah, they're all really funny and cool. So they're uh, in a bad spot, just like Yara. So, And it sounds like they're actually even in a worse spot, but they probably have more combat experience. I mean, they create weapons, so I'm sure they have some experience in using them. We saw that with... Um, Yarpin and Zoltan. And yeah, Sheldon actually had participated in the first Nilfgaardian War. And Dennis is a, he was a captain, of, like a guard captain in the lander. So he's got to have some skill, some combat skill. But either way, this Nilfgaardian War looks terrible. Like it just, it just seems um, like it's going to end badly for the Northerners. But Let's keep a positive outlook while we're still at this point in the book until we actually get any answers. Like the um, the land schneck. <laughs> like that guy who said, oh, well, Nilfgaard sees that, that comet that could mean ill omens, so it could mean those bad things for them. So let's try to think of that. I am not on the side of Nilfgaard. I know that the leaders of the northern countries are not great, but... I do feel bad for the people that have to fight in the wars, like the northern soldiers and the peasants that have to live in these villages that just get burned. And the people that are minding their own business, they don't care about who's ruling over them. And Emperor Amir is just sending his large military to just destroy everything in the north for reasons that these innocent people don't even care about at all. So... That's why I want the North to be successful in this war. So that the Nilfgaardians go away and they stop ruining their lives. Okay, I'm rambling on long enough. Just to let you know in case you didn't, these episodes are available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you in the next episode.